0: Travel has that advantage, which you go somewhere and, and you you find out what it is you really want, you know, what, what you're capable of, too. You don't have someone from home um, telling you what you should do or telling you what your limitations are. You're actually, when you travel and when you're alone, and particularly if you have a job doing it, you're among other people and they don't know your history. And so you're able to introduce yourself and 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 discover yourself as they're discovering you, too. They have no preconceptions about you.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, travel writing legend Paul Theroux comes back on the show. This season of my podcast features interviews with writers I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way, and I quote Paul Theroux in 10 different sections of the new book, Paul Theroux revolutionized the travel writing scene with his 1975 bestseller, The Great Railway Bazaar, and he's written nearly 20 other travel books since then, exploring nearly every corner of the world with his writing. You might recall we talked about his essay collection, Figures in a Landscape, on this podcast in 2018, and he came back on the show to talk about his Mexico travel book, On the Plain of Snakes, in 2019. But I quote Theroux again and again in The Vagabond's Way, less because he's so prolific as a travel writer than because he's so aphoristic and insightful as a travel writer. Indeed, he doesn't just report on distant places. He has a great way of evoking the experience of immersive travel, its ambiguities and annoyances, as well as its joys and epiphanies. In The Vagabond's Way, I quote him about the way luxury hotels can insulate you from the place you're visiting and how ordinary moments on the road can make you feel homesick. But I also quote him about the kindness of strangers and the way travel has a way of slowing down time, how travel involves dreaming about places and then finding ways to make those dreams come true, and how the best journeys wind up becoming an expression of your best self. Travel is at its most rewarding, I quote him at one point, when it ceases to be about your reaching a destination and becomes indistinguishable from living your life, end quote. Today's conversation with Paul Theroux isn't about a travel book. It's about his new novel, The Bad Angel Brothers, which is a Cain and Abel-style tale of deceit and betrayal between a pair of Massachusetts-born brothers named Cal and Frank. Yet we invariably end up talking about travel, specifically travel to and expatriate life in developing countries, We talk about the contradictions of a continent like Africa, which is often regarded by outside powers in terms of either extractive exploitation or self-congratulatory humanitarianism. We talk about how it's complicated to make ethical sense of an enterprise like cobalt mining in an age when cobalt is an ingredient in the smartphones we use to find and share information about the world. We start by talking about brotherly conflict as a classic trope in literature. Let's listen in. Your new book is, is The Bad Angel Brothers, and there's a long, rich history of epic stories about conflicts between brothers going back through King Hamlet and Claudius to Cain and Abel. And one of the more famous modern novels about brotherly conflict is, is East of Eden. This one story is the basis of all hum, human neurosis. So I'm curious to know why you chose to frame a story about uh, these two brothers in conflict.
0: I think for that very reason. I think I was in high school when I read *East of Eden*. Hmm. There's a whole, there's a whole circle of Dante's hell, Dante's Inferno, devoted to um, fratricides, hmm. famous fratricides, Romulus and Remus, Cain and Abel. I mean, I don't know of a book about brothers, two brothers, where there's harmony. Hmm. So it's a classic. It's a it's a classic situation of. The two brothers, and there's usually a parent involved, often a thing a mother, a mother, a surviving mother, a widow, as in as in my case. So I wanted to take this as a, um, a classic narrative of sibling rivalry, but also, you know, Cain and Abel. That story is about a brother who stays and a brother who goes. In my book. The brother who goes away is the more well-adjusted one the one who stays home with his mother as the lawyer in 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 his um in his town is the one who's kind of conflicted envious conflicted and has um a lot of aggression toward toward the brother that goes away whom he accused of kind of abandoning the mother abandoning him so it's also about i suppose this Jungian notion of individuation, the idea that if you go away, um, you develop a sense of self that you, that's rather hard to develop if you stay home. That when you're on your own traveling, um, you find out who it is you are, what you want, what your ambitions are.
1: Cal, as the traveler, is someone I related to as a reader, but there were times where I felt like Cal was not being the most honest narrator, and there are certain details that Cal admits in passing that he doesn't um, talk about directly, like, for example, what he's doing with his money. How did you create uh, this traveler character, but yet yet sort of make him a little bit gray and dark and fallible against Frank?
0: That's a good question, but I think that the answer is that when none of us saw. Uh, Black or white, straight ahead, you know, or crooked. We all have a flaw. Some of us a deep flaw. And the idea that Cal withholds this information—not only about that, but I mean, he has an affair with a woman in 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 Africa, and lives a kind of secret life as far as the profits of his um, of his company. He doesn't even tell his wife that he's he's got emeralds that he's got emerald mine in Zambia. Mm-hmm. So he's very secretive, he's secretive to protect himself, but he's secretive to, in a way that diminishes your respect for for, for, uh, for him. I didn't want him to be the good guy, I didn't want Frank to be the bad guy, I wanted them each to have some virtues and to see the, the complexity, so um, life as it is, as opposed to life as we wished it to be. When I was a a younger writer, I saw things in much more um uh in much simpler terms. A a bad guy was a bad guy and a good guy was a good guy. Uh this isn't this isn't that
1: in the Bible uh Cain is sort of condemned after the fall to to live a life uh of wandering. Um that's right. Uh, it's almost like Cal has chosen that, and in 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 a sense, being home is his pain.
0: Cain becomes an exile. Um, Cal, on the other hand, goes away, not not to exile himself, but to but to find out um, what his ambitions are in life, and find out to be among other people. I did that. I mean, I'm sure you did too. That travel has that advantage, which you go somewhere and. And you you find out what it is you really want. You know what what you're capable of too. You don't have someone from home um, telling you what you should do or telling you what your limitations are. You're actually when you travel and when you're alone, and particularly if you have a job doing it, you're among other people, and they don't know your history. And so you're able to introduce yourself and 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 discover yourself as they're discovering you too. They have no preconceptions about you. Hmm. I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, And it's very helpful, too.
1: Yeah, it it seems like one of Cal's big conflicts is that he, he has trouble staying at home, even when he's married, even when he has a son. He I mean, again, as a traveler, I sort of want to relate to Cal, but he doesn't really seem to be putting much effort into being a husband or a father. Yet there's this there's this weird wrinkle where his wife works in what he describes as big charity, which I'm, I'm which I don't know a ton about, but it sounds like he's a little skeptical of this. Whereas he's in he is living in the world, the much more complicated world of mining and, uh, you know, possible child labor that big charity is is seeking to circumvent. Yet when he is seeking evidence to try and help his wife to sort of win her back to find evidence of child labor in Africa, um, he takes uh, a cell phone photo of children mining cobalt and his friend says, "Um, that phone probably has cobalt that came from here. And yep. so, so it feels like Cal also belongs to a much more nuanced and complicated world. And that even though we can see him in a negative sense as not being loyal to home, he also has this knowledge that sort of shows how complicated of a world we live in.
0: The great contradiction in the world today is just that. It's just that, that um, all, all cell phones, you know, the, a lot of batteries, have cobalt in them. And cobalt only comes from very, very few places. And very little of it is mined um, ethically.
2: Hmm.
0: But, you know, I I think about this a lot. I mean, your iPhone is assembled in China by people who are paid a lot less than they would be paid if, if they were made in the United States. So Tim Cook, who comes from Alabama, by the way, and I found out a lot about how Alabama has defunded its education and how life is very hard for people in Alabama because they have no industry. Well, <laughs> Tim Cook said he wanted to give some money to Alabama. You can give them some work. Actually, Apple making making electronics in China is creating a very, very strong communist party. So this, this capitalist country, manufacturing in China, has created wealth for hundreds of thousands, and maybe millions of people in China who wouldn't otherwise be uplifted by the by the communist government. I mean that's the paradox. The paradox today is Gates, Microsoft, Apple, many other companies are manufacturing in countries where people are very badly treated. And they're doing it because labor they they've found sources of cheap labor in Vietnam in, in, uh, on the Mexican border because of NAFTA in, in China, in India, and so forth. And in a way, the, the, the guy pointing this out to us can say, by the way, you get cobalt in your phone. That, that phone is a moment um, of uh, recognition for him, a sense of reality. Most of the stuff you buy at, at a big box store or Walmart or, I don't know, name a, name a store, is made in China. And we know that China persecutes minorities. They've in, invaded and took over Tibet. There's no freedom of speech there. And yet you have American capitalist, liberals, liberals like Gates and Tim Cook going there. So this is when you're writing a book, this is sort of paradoxes that you it's helpful to confront, maybe. Mm. and they they interest me a lot. the hypocrisy. Interests me greatly.
1: Hmm. I wonder if, if if Africa can possibly be a hypocrisy free conversation in in the Western or even the Eastern imagination because you have you know obviously China is has a very extractive relationship with Africa right now, um, and of course Europe and the West has for 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 centuries had such a thing, but at the same time, and, and you've been very critical of sort of the the this big charity, this this sort of charity industrial complex, which has sort of characterized in recent decades the West's relationship to a place like Africa, where you sort of, where celebrities fly in with sort of Band-Aid cures for the problem. I'm just curious to know where the, where the charity versus extractive capitalism trains are going to meet or diverge or crash.
0: That's a good question. I don't have the answer, but I, I would say that one of the ways that people can be Lifted out of poverty is to give them work. Give them, you know, you don't give them money or a soup kitchen. You actually create. You create a purpose. Charity is a wonderful thing and and it's a necessary thing, but it doesn't hold a candle in terms of development to to having industry to having work. And the proof of that is American industry in China. If all of China's prosperity is due to investment,
2: hmm.
0: investment by the West in China, in Hong Kong, in China, but also in India, in Thailand, in 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 Vietnam. Very little. I mean, do you ever hear of there's a charity in the States that's sending money to China? I haven't. I haven't heard of one. Hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't know of one. I don't think there is one. Do you ever hear of someone saying, well, let's collect money for the Chinese? No, you don't. Hmm. I would say it's it's because the investment in China has been so great. What about investing in the United States? When you say that, people say, well, you know, it's cheaper to make things in, in, in China. So <laughs> that's, that, that's the paradox, that, that, that it, be, you wouldn't find cheap labor in the United States. And most of these places would close because of either unions or because the cost, of the cost of labor. But, I mean, that's also the cost of doing business. It's also, we'd have to pay more for these things. I know all those arguments. But Trump was going to do something about it and did nothing. No one's done anything about it. And as a matter of fact, if, um, when writing about Mexico, what I discovered was the same thing, NAFTA. NAFTA was just a way of, of American companies finding cheap labor in Mexico on the Mexican border. Go 100 yards over the border and hire people for one-third of the salary that it would it would be in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. You know, go 100 yards over the border and then work for a lot less. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's the capitalist system. So people say, well, that's capitalism. Also, it's a way of impoverishing people by removing the manufacturing from, from taking work away from them and then exploiting people for their, uh, for their uh, for low wages. These are factors that I touched on in the Bad Angel Brothers, but I didn't explore them. I just, you know, these are just mentioned in the book, but they interest me a lot. You know, I'm an old man. I've traveled quite a lot, and I've seen a lot of injustice in the world. And at the moment, I don't see it improving. I don't see the system improving. All I see was that we've made China very, very strong. We've made China into a very strong enemy. China in Africa... Is behaving like colonial power. Hmm. China is not in Africa to uplift people; they're, they're to exploit it and to um, to to find products that they need. The Chinese have bought a lot of copper mines. They they've, they're into cobalt in the Congo, and they're even. I mean, the the um, farmers in in Africa they own farms. They're growing they're growing food, exporting food. So I don't see the Africans benefit from this. I, I, I've been involved in Africa for 60 years, hmm. almost six years, 59 years. Mm-hmm. I was in the Peace Corps in 1963. So this has been on my mind all that time. I mean, how do you help people? Malawi, the country that I was in, had 3 million people in 1963. It now has, you know, over 20 million people. Well, you know, there's 23 million people in Mexico City, so you could say, well, that's not bad. But actually, Malawi doesn't have sufficient resources to feed this number of people. And they always need foreign governments to prop up their economy. So they're in a bad way, but I don't know how the situation is improved. Um, some people say revolution. That's a very tempting thing, but it hasn't worked that well in other, in other places in Africa where they overthrow the government. So i think i don't know you need people need to be inspired and i think um investment is one of the ways of doing it even when it doesn't seem like it's going to benefit the investor that much you know phil knight makes nikes in in vietnam i don't know whether he makes is any nike product made in the united states i don't think so so why because they'd be a bit, the profits wouldn't be as great, or they'd have to charge a lot more. So for for us to have cheap goods means exploiting other people. In my novel, I tried to suggest this, but because Cal is the traveler, and traveling the world, he sees the injustices and how children are working in mines and how people are used. And you see in, in the extractive industries, in mining, um, a lot of it 's technical, but a lot of it needs just manpower mm. and women too um, so he's um he gets a uh, close up view to that
1: yeah it, one interesting thing about him as he 's balancing his life in Africa and his life or his semi lack thereof life in the United States. Uh, is just how he sort of he, he says that he doesn't really come all the way back. When he when he comes home, he doesn't feel like he's all the way home, which I feel feel I think echoes a line that you wrote in Dark Star Safari years ago. just the idea of once you are committed to another place, then you your relationship to home, shifts in a way. And it seems like Cal is happiest when he has a nice self-contained relationship with his mistress in Zambia, as well as a workable relationship with his wife Vita back in Massachusetts. He commits to neither. Uh, and so I'm wondering uh, in, in, in the context of the characters or in the context of life, if, if a traveler is allo- ever allowed to come back and, and, and belong to a place
0: well, I talk about this separation. talk about the the culture shock that you get when you go away, and then when you come back, culture shock is a lot uh, greater. But it's really a book about two brothers, one who, who wants to kill his brother because he feels his brother is trying to destroy him. I mean, it's a book about fratricide. So, and, and I suppose it's exacerbated by the fact that when Cal is away, as you say. Um, he doesn't come all the way back, but also the brother resents that. The Frank, who stays home, resents that.
1: You've written before about how one advantage of a travel book is that you know how it's going to end. Um, did you Did you have any sense of an ending in mind? Uh, when you started writing this, I mean, uh, these brother conflict novels and narratives often have an inevitability to them. Were you writing toward an entry, an ending, or were you sort of writing your way into how it felt like the characters were revealing themselves and their actions towards each other?
0: I think the latter. I think what, uh, that you, the way you put it, which is working toward a conclusion of which I was completely unaware, or not completely aware. And I think that's true in general with novels, that that you really don't, I mean, unless you're a, a hack or a genius, your work, a, a writer is working toward a conclusion which isn't clear at the outset, but slowly becomes apparent as he or she is writing. And I think that's why you keep at it. It's the most difficult part of writing because you sit down every morning thinking, now what? Where, where am I going with this? And then it, it kind of catches fire. And the next day you start again and think, you know, where am I going next? So um, I didn't know quite how it was going to end. I knew that there would be a confrontation at the end, but I wasn't quite sure how it would turn out.
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess they say ending should be inevitable yet surprising, and it feels without giving your ending away that that it, that it was both in this situation. We were we were talking before we were recording how I just got back from the Faroe Islands, a place that you've never been, which sort of surprises me because it feels like you've been everywhere. Uh, what's on your docket next? Travel or or, or writing or um, kayaking? What's what's in store for you in the near future?
0: I've been working on a novel um, since last year, I guess. Since I finished The Bad Angel Brothers, Mm -hmm. I started working on a novel, and um, I've been doing that. It's a novel that interests me a lot. It's about a historical figure, Mm -hmm. um, someone from the 20th century who traveled um, and uh, then became a writer. And it's about him and set in the 1920s. I can't give too much away, but mm. um, it's a person. We don't know a lot about this person, or at least his life in the 1920s, but but I feel as if I can... Um, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Describe wh- uh, where he was and what he was doing. And I'm going to keep working on that into probably early next year. Then I would like to travel. There's a lot of places I would like to go. Mm. The answer to your question is, yes, I would like to travel, I'd like to write about travel. I would like to go back to places. I'd like to go back to Africa. I'd like to um, see China and India again. I'd like like to go back to Mexico. Uh, I've been traveling road trips in Canada during the pandemic.
2: Hmm.
0: I'd like to write something about that. Uh, Faroe Islands isn't high on my list, but um, I would like to see them sometime there are many places i've never been i mean i've never been to scandinavia i've never been to um montana for that matter i've been to kansas i've just driven through kansas i've never really looked at kansas so i've read a lot about it i mean i read this wonderful book by william hitley's heat moon Mm. uh, or prairie earth that's Kansas, isn't
1: it? It is. It's about the Flint Hills, which I can see from my window right now. It's a. It's about three counties over from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and it's a yeah, very that, good book.
0: That's an amazing book. I, I reviewed it, and my review is in one of my collections. Uh, he's a great traveler. So I yeah I have a lot, I would I'll finish this novel, and then I'll think about travel.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Paul Theroux's newest novel, The Bad Angel Brothers, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.